episode of Assurance in Action, the podcast of your total quality assurance provider, Intertech. I am your host, Seth Martin Wick, and today we will be covering the Restriction of Hazardous Substances Directive, or ROS, R-O-H-S. I am joined by Bob Trimble, who is the Program Manager for Global Restricted Substances with Intertech's Health, Environmental, and Regulatory Services Group. Bob, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Seth. Good morning. Very good, very good. So what is your experience in the industry, and what do you do with Intertech? All right, so that's a, that's a since I'm not that young, I guess, a, a question that I will try not to drag out. But uh, going back to the mid-'80s, got involved in uh, production of electronic equipment, um, mini computers at the time, and then moved into quality, quality management systems as software and hardware, you know, through the Lean Six, six Sigma phase, Six Sigma phase, excuse me, and the whole continuous improvement thing, and just really enjoy working with the quality systems. And um, about 10 years ago, the opportunity came about at Intertech to kind of marry those two with ROHS, Ross, Rose, uh, Restriction of Hazardous Substances, all the different ways to say it, and work that into people's ISO systems, non-ISO systems, basically whatever works for them. So, uh, yeah, I've been with Intertech about 10 years as a program manager. That's that's everything from um, EP to, uh, you know, big box stores requiring third-party certification to, hey, where do I go to get this tested? What Intertech lab does what we need to do to meet the regulations. Originally put into implementation in 2006, uh, what does the Restriction of Hazardous Substances Directive, or ROHS, address? Okay, so it's... Um, it restricts the use of six substances at the homogeneous material level in currently 11 categories of electronics. So the, the original directive, which, which kind of came about in the early 2000s, right, was, and was driven and had a lot of input from electronic component manufacturers, um, restricted at 1,000 parts per million, lead, hexavalent chromium, mercury, uh, polybrominated biphenyls, PBBs, right, that's a, a tongue twister, and then uh, polybrominated diphenyl ethers, that's another tongue twister, and then cadmium at 100 parts per million by weight at the homogeneous material level. So that, that actually hasn't changed. Um, but once again, the key there is, you know, we hear this ROS, we hear 5 of 6, we hear lead-free, we hear band, um, but really what it does is, is restricts, keyword being at the homogeneous material level, um, six substances, and going forward, we, we soon have some additions to that. Great. So who does ROS affect, and how does it affect them? All right. So uh, big picture, it affects uh, the manufacturers, suppliers, importers, distributors of uh, almost all materials, uh, especially as we go forward these days. Almost everything has electronics in it in some capacity, right? Um, smart fabrics, sneakers watches. That affects anybody globally, because we're talking about EU ROS and MS, you know, maybe we can expand that a little bit going forward with this podcast. Sure. But uh, as we talk about the, the EU ROS and the member states and, and selling and shipping, importing into the EU, it affects manufacturers, importers, distributors, authorized reps. They all have legal responsibility. So, um, you know, anybody that manufactures a product, an end product and sells it in, um, the majority of that sits with them, but anybody who supplies them, any component or material, also gets affected. 
So, how has Ross changed since its launch in 2006? Well, in, a, in 2011, we had the, the Ross recast. So we have uh, came into force in 2013. Um, the major change not being any of the materials that were restricted, but it falls under the CE mark. So when you CE mark your product, and it's in scope for ROHS, so you fall into one of the 11 categories, and I won't go into details about the categories at this point, but uh, when you are in scope for ROHS and you CE mark your product, you are stating legally that you comply with all the requirements of the 2011 directive. So that's that's the big change, quite frankly, right there. Great, great. How will our ROHS change in the future, both immediate and distant? I know that there's been so, talk about yeah, these recently. Yeah, so the immediate future right now is, is we have uh, four additional phthalates, plasticizers that affect uh, plastics and, and plastic materials, um, polymers, things like that. Um, those phthalates come into scope for the majority of categories next month. So in July of 2019, you need to control what goes into your plastics, polymers, uh, non-metal components. So there's a total of 10 restricted substances now. Once again, they're not banned, they're restricted. From the perspective of someone who's been in the industry and seeing trends, etc., where do you see changes even further in the future? So uh, that, that kind of that kind of segues me into we hear about Ross 3 and um, both Ross 2 and, and Ross 3, quite frankly, are slang terms. So, so Ross 2 really stuff we had to recast. Now we hear these additional phthalates being referenced as, as Ross 3, but it's really an amendment to Ross 2. So, you know, I'm just going to kind of come out and say it, right? We don't, we don't like to use Ross 3 as slang. We don't like to, to see that on documents, even though it's it's kind of taken up Ross 3 as, as referencing these four phthalates. But going forward, we, it does appear that there will be a, a true Ross 3, which some people are calling Ross 4, or a recast. Um, not an amendment, but a recast of the current document that includes an additional um, seven substances. So uh, the majority of them are flame retardants, but we also get into nickel sulfates, beryllium and beryllium compounds, cobalt dichloride. So, um, yeah, that, that's common, and that's a couple years away at this point. But that, that's where it looks like it's going to go. It looks like enforcement, and it looks like... Um, the documentation and what you need to do to comply with the directive. Um, there be very few changes to that at this point, but they are adding additional substances going forward and they will be a recast. So, Bob, in your experience, what are maybe three or four examples of organizations that have either been adversely affected by compliance with Ross or have overcome challenges from the effects of compliance with Ross? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll speak into that kind of from the, the the bottom of the supply chain up. So we have um, we have some small and, and typically every large company, every producer of an end product uses some local businesses. Right? Sometimes you know we call them mom and pop businesses. They use some local businesses that supply key components or, or materials to to the product, and they really struggle with this kind of legislation. Like they're not familiar with it. They they don't have the the personnel in place with the expertise. They, they may not have a, a, even a regulatory department. And they struggle to understand the directive and what it means. 
and what they have to do. So when they when they get paperwork pushed down onto them from the, the next layer in the supply chain, a lot of times they struggle to respond. That doesn't mean they're not compliant, right? That doesn't mean they can't put that stuff in place. They just don't know how to respond because they're they're not familiar with this. And, and that's one of those things like you know with internet when we, we engage with people like that. We have the experience to kind of help them out, right? Like, like here's what you need to do. You don't need to have a 28-page ISO system for what you do, right? We just need to put the, the proper controls in place. So, um, you know, we can alleviate that pain point with a lot of those those local shops that just don't have the documentation in place that, that says what they do and, and they're experts at what they do. And we're not looking to have the next layer of the supply chain say, well, oh, you're not ISO certified. You can't do this. So you're just, we're going to shut you out, right? Um, the other side of that same point is I mean, we see people making a decision at, at that stage like, hey, are we going to get in this global supply chain thing with ROHS, REACH, and Drop 65 and all this stuff? Or are we really just going to say, no, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. If you need all this documentation and you need us to sign declarations or certificates, um, we're out. We're just going to supply people that, that sell to the states, quite frankly. We're willing to make that decision based on perceived costs and things like that. So that, that's what we kind of see at the base level, right? And then as we go up the supply chain, um, we see people have departments, they have quality departments, they have people that, that are tasked with making sure the companies that supply whatever sub-product, assembly, component, or end product that they make, um, play by all the rules and, and have the proper quality processes in place to, to, continue, to continue to supply compliant material, right? Not just, hey, here, here's a test report, here's a sample, does this get me by? But they, they have the processes in place that every time we buy from them, we have some confirmation. We know that we're getting the same material, right? We get into recycling. We get into um, using regrind with plastics and, and mold releases and chemicals, and, you know, all kinds of technical stuff that at what level does a company have a materials expert or a quality expert that knows that kind of information, right? So then, then we get up to the, to the end product producer who has to supply all this paperwork and, and illegally have it in place to sell into the European Union, or as they sell into other markets, there might be some additional compliance information required. There might be a, a third party required, like for the UAE, that needs to review their technical documentation, um, potentially test reports things like that. So do they have the people in place to deal with that and the time and money and expertise it takes to deal with that and stay on top of that? So, you know, we get a little bit deeper into this ROHS law and we see that, man, I'm, I'm required not just to do this once, but I need to maintain my technical documentation. I need to keep it updated. And, and there's exemptions. I'm allowed to have lead in certain components, but, man, some of these exemptions expire? How do I stay on top of all this stuff? So although not technically difficult to comply with the regulation, um, putting, putting the business systems in place and the process, processes in place at the higher levels to manage it all can be a little bit tricky, right? It can be a little bit of a chore. So that, that's where I see the supply chain struggle throughout. And then to, to talk kind of from the material side of things, Quite frankly, lead, lead contamination and 
and a little bit less going forward, but still quite prevalent, is hexavalent chromium plating. Those are kind of the two leaders, right? Um, occasionally, we see some cadmium. You know, where do we see it on connectors, on platings? You know, maybe maybe I did a, a, a last time buy on a bunch of connectors that I use in a cable, and they were mil-spec connectors, and they're coated with cadmium. And, and the company that I bought them from long ago went out of business, so I'm not going to get any compliance information from it. Like, how do I deal with that? Is, is there a path forward for that? Or do I have to purge all that inventory, right? Um, and the lead contamination thing, we, we always see. So even in, even in shops that say, hey, I'm totally lead-free, um, I'm not going to throw a percentage out there, Seth, but I'm going to say, like, a lot of times, if we go on site with portable XRF, or if they send samples of things from um, soldering stations that are used for secondary operations, um, or, to, or to build a wiring harness, like, quite frankly, where the high risks are, a lot of times we do find um, lead contamination in those solder joints and things like that. So, I, you know, I try to speak in a little bit of what's coming off from the from the material side of things uh, there as well. It definitely seems like there's a lot of moving pieces in with this compliance and uh, business at any any level of this supply chain. They're at risk. So in that situation, uh, what would you advise that these organizations do um, in order to kind of get that expert opinion? Yeah, so a lot of people do go to a third party and say, you know, we think we have all our ducks in a row. But we'd like to bring somebody in and, and, and speak to our management at the highest level so everybody in the company is on the same page. We understand why we're spending this money, why we're doing it, and then get, get into the details of here's how you do business. Like, how do you control your supply chain? How do you control not just for ROHS, but for, for other um, restrictions, other laws, other regulations, other directives? How do you control what goes into your product? Right? Are we just are we picking like rubber feet out of a catalog and we really don't know where they're coming from? And that's always been fine. And our purchasing department is great. They they have an we're equivalent and they go to town sourcing low price stuff and we make money, which is fantastic. Like I live with that, but at the same time now we have to know what goes in there. So when I buy from a supplier, I need declarations, I need confirmations that they know exactly what's in their product. Okay. Right. Um, what are the pain points? Where where do people really struggle? Right. And you know that 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 training. Also, we make sure that not just the company we're working with, but as they push down the supply chain, they understand the requirements. Like there's a lot of people that would say, you know, I just make a nut, or I just make a plastic hook, or I just mold this widget for you. It doesn't require any electricity. It it doesn't need to be in scope. So. Not so much anymore, especially with, with larger companies, but smaller and medium, medium-sized companies still sometimes have the impression that they are not in scope for ROHS because they don't make an electronic product. But as their product gets used in products that do utilize electricity, battery power, plugged into a wall and are in scope, um, it pulls their product and their material into scope. So we still have some misunderstanding there. We still have companies that will send a declaration saying, hey, we comply. Like, we're not even in scope. Like, sign the declaration. And quite frankly, they just don't understand that one is at the homogeneous material level. So it's not just, you know, you might say, take your sub-assembly and say, wow, we, we only have one circuit board in here. Who 
there's no way that because my subassembly weighs five pounds, I'm going to be above, above a thousand parts per million by weight. But it's at home at the material level. So as soon as they contaminate, as soon as they use um, a, a leaded board, things like that, basically the whole assembly becomes non-compliant. So that, that misunderstanding, I think, is one of the key areas where people struggle as well. You know, we, we accept the documents, but why do we accept the documents? You know, did, did we really did we do a supplier survey? Do we know if, if this guy really does understand the directive, even though he's giving me documentation? I think that there's a lot of uh, misunderstandings in, in this industry, and I think that the more education that a business can get, the more... Um, in line they will be when that does come, whether that's a, that's a call from their, their buyer or a call from, you know, XYZ government entity. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So, you know, two things happen. You know, like you reference the buyer and you reference the government organization, the member state organization that would be requesting information, right? Basically, starting to get into enforcement there. At the corporate level, they're taking responsibility, right? Like, I, like, why are we doing this in the first place, right? This is going to cost us money. Well, we can make things without exposing the population, not just people that work here, but users of the products to things we know are hazardous. And going forward, as these things get scrapped, how do they get recycled? How do, how do they not get into a landfill, right? So that, that's kind of what we're addressing um, with the program in the end. So it's, you know, it's kind of important, right? Like I, I know I don't want my kids exposed to this stuff. Somebody can, somebody can make a product without lead. Like I want that, right? If, if, I, if they cannot touch hexavalent chromium, I want that. So, um, yeah, to kind of answer the first, first part of that, that question before we get into enforcement, um, what it's, it's environmental and social responsibility going forward. How to do that. Sure. And then, Two, you know, like I'm legally required to do it. So to take a step back from enforcement, you know, we come across some companies and they go, you know, we, we have the mentality. We're going to take our chances. Like we're not going to do anything until somebody catches us and makes us. Right. Other companies, they, they take the bull by the horns like an intertech. We're very conservative. Right. Like as low as as low risk to no risk as we can make something. That's what the process and that and that's the level of due diligence we want to do. Other people take bigger risks and then accept documents or just say, hey, we're going to deal with it. If we, if we don't get caught, we'll keep selling. And if we get caught, we'll, we'll deal with that. And, and that's where we really run into trouble. Right? That's where we, we have bans of products and we have um, fines. Right. Like that, that's what the end enforcement can look like. But really, we, we don't want to get there. We want to have our documentation in order. And there's guidance on this. Right. It's not just, well, what is the documentation? Um, when we do our training, when we do things like gap assessments and, you know, we walk into a company and say, hey, you know, we're going to train you. But if this is also going to seem a little bit like an audit. Like, do you have a copy of the directive? Surprisingly, a lot of people that say they comply with the directive don't even have a copy of it. Right. Like what what standard did you use? What guidance did you use to test or to develop your processes? Because we have, you know, we have IEC 63000. We have very specific guidance for ROHS, that kind of draws a nice little picture of what you have have to have in place. And then, you know, a lot of companies are small, medium-sized companies. They're not that familiar with what that stuff looks like. They may never have been through an ISO audit. They don't, they don't really know. So we can come in and we can take a look at that stuff, do a little bit of a gap assessment, a process gap assessment, and then make some recommendations. Like, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You, you, you don't need 400 pages 
uh, process. It's like, here's really what you need to comply with the law. And the, the law being, if a member state, a member state asks for it, you have 28 days to provide your technical documentation. So, you know, it's kind of spelled right out there for you. And if you can't do that, then we get into, you know, the, the, the area we really don't want any of our customers to get into, which is bans, fines, and even worse than that, quite frankly, right, that the public knowing that you didn't do what you need to do to, to legally solve the problem. Right, right. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for your time, Bob. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing all this information. Oh, my pleasure, Seth. Fantastic. It was fun. Yeah. Very good. Uh, so uh, thanks for listening to another episode of Assurance in Action. Uh, if you would like to learn more about ROHS, please follow the links in the description of this podcast. Please also remember to subscribe and rate Assurance in Action whenever you can. Uh, please also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, tune in next week for another episode of Assurance in Action. Uh,